Tonight is, um, it's, like a, it's like a Sharpie kind of mark your Bible night. You know what I mean? You want to, write, you want to mark those verses out. Um, like Sharpie, you can't, anyway. All right, it's fine. Um, it's convicting is what I'm saying. I almost put in the group me like, maybe don't come tonight. Because um, like, really, these verses I, I'll tell you the story in a little bit, but I heard these verses for the first time. Really, really, they became clear um, when I was in college, and they were they were kind of shattering for me in in a good way ultimately, but like a really difficult way to begin with. And so, maybe you leave here unscathed. Thank the Lord. Um, unless you have a hard heart, and then, uh-oh. Um, but then, like, maybe, like, you have that same experience that I had when you first hear these words, um, and they really sink in. And so, just know, we can have conversations afterwards um, about this, because this, this is a heavy, a heavy text. And, uh, and, and the Sermon on the Mount, it starts off, like, so pleasant. He's on a mountain, and he sits down, and he tells everybody how blessed they are. Um, he gives the Beatitudes, and then you get here, and it just, it's difficult. So what we are in is the Sermon on the Mount series, and we're taking chapter five to begin with, then we're going to take a little break, then we're going to come back to chapter six, and Matthew five, six, and seven, those three chapters are the Sermon on the Mount, the largest collection that we have of Jesus giving a sermon that's recorded, uh, and he does, Jesus does teach the same things to multiple people in different places, and so we get glimpses of these ideas other places, uh, but this is like all of it recorded at one time. And so leading up to it, like we talked about the last couple of weeks, in chapters one through four, this is the gospel to the Jewish people. And so you get a very Jewish Messiah presented in the book of Matthew. From the birth account to, uh, to the flight to Egypt and then out of Egypt, you see uh, the lineage of Christ. You see a mirror of the, the Israelites going into, into captivity and exile and then coming out. Um, you see that in Jesus' life mirrored. You see the baptism, you see the temptation, the start of his ministry, him preaching and, and healing, his, his ministry is beginning, and then he calls the disciples, and then Matthew introduces us to this first big sermon. And so we really get a glimpse inside of who is Jesus and what is he teaching people. Uh, and so let me just pray for us as we really, again, continue to focus on the idea of Christian flourishing. How do Christians, followers of Christ, how do they flourish in this life while this life has so many messes in it? So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak through your word tonight. Lord, we know that your word is living and active we know, Lord, that you can move so powerfully through your word, that your word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, Lord. And so, Lord, help me to handle it well, and may your spirit move, and may you speak to us through the study of Jesus' words tonight in the book of Matthew. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's read the passage one more time. It says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, 
will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift, and settle matters quickly with your adversary while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And, I, and truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So before we look deeply at the heart of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to really examine what's happening here. Like, how did we get here? How did we go from Jesus goes up on a mountainside, his disciples come to him, he sits down, he begins to teach them saying, blessed are you, and he says blessed nine times. He goes through the Beatitudes. He talks about the, and again, the best English word I know from a few weeks ago when we introduced this is the word flourishing instead of blessing. So he's saying flourishing flourishing are you when, flourishing are you when, and he does that nine times to this section. How do we get to this? this that's kind of a big leap. And so this is gonna be the first of six times in a row Jesus is gonna say, you have heard it said, and then he's gonna quote an Old Testament passage, and then he's gonna come back and he's gonna say, but I tell you. And so it's gonna, this is the first of six of those, but I think to really understand this, we need to look up a few verses before this into Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And so I intentionally left this out as like a sermon by itself um, because it, it's kind of the linchpin that links together not just this section that we're looking at tonight, verses 21 through 26 on anger, but all of the sections on lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, etc. So let's look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what we see a lot of times is that people will say, oh, Jesus didn't come to abolish them, but he came to fulfill them, which means that the law, whoa, what just happened? iPad freaking out. Actually, user error. Um, and so anyway, what we mean by, I just, I just love, what a, what a coward. I just sloughed the blame on the iPad. <laughs> totally my fault. Okay. Sorry. Get a grip, man. Um, all right. So I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. What we often hear is that Jesus fulfilled the law, which a better translation for law is instructions. And so the instructions, just to give you a little Bible history real fast, Exodus chapter 20, the Israelites have come out of Egypt. Moses goes up onto a mountain. He receives commandments from God. We know those as the 10 commandments, although he received a bunch more, comes down from the mountain and gives those to the people. Those are instructions on how God wanted them to live as his holy set apart people. What does Jesus do? He goes up on a mountain. He is God, gives the people the word of God on how to live. He is the new and better Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. And so people say, oh, well, in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled all of those laws that Moses gave. So they say things like, so I am not under the law anymore. Well, if you're not under the law anymore, then I guess you can like lie and murder and do all these kinds of things but you really can't. And so we have to know like, what does it mean that he fulfilled them? And because there's certainly some laws that Moses gave that we are still following as Christians. 
instructions on how God wants us to live and flourish. And so let's try to understand real quick what it means to fulfill. Look at verse 18. He says, uh, says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, newsflash, we're still here, uh, heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, not the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen, that's a jot or a tittle in Hebrew, little tiny letters, little tiny markings really, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so I want you to understand that as Jonathan Pennington and his really, really good um, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus is not abolishing the law against murder, but he's bringing out its fullest and truest sense. Jesus actually doesn't lessen what Moses gave the people. He actually drills down deeper and says, let me tell you the heart behind God's instruction Because maybe if you really understand the heart behind his instruction, you'll see that it really does bring freedom. 1 John 5, 3, the commands of God are not burdensome. And so if we look at verse 19, this is a really, really pivotal verse. This verse is so often misunderstood. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to underline called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what I used to think, and I don't know if I was taught this or if I just like imagined this, what I used to think was Jesus sets us free. And so if I don't really do the law and if I teach people maybe the Bible a little bit wrong, it's okay. I'll just be like a ticket taker in heaven. Like, glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Maybe I live the van life in heaven. I don't know. Um, But like, I'm not like front row seats or anything, but like I'm there. And so that's kind of how I read, read this. And then like, if I really like lived fully for the Lord, then I'm like, I'm like giving the guy the ticket, you know, like I'm the other person. And so I just thought, oh, this is, this is how this verse reads. But actually, that's not at all how it reads because look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus ends the section by saying, some people won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we go back to verse 19, I hope I can make this make sense. It, 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 you have to look at it real careful, but look at this. If you just look right here, in the kingdom of heaven, so people are in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord is in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, the folks who teach these commands, who, who set aside the commands, they will be called least by the people in the kingdom of heaven. The people who teach and practice these commands, they will be called great by the people in the kingdom of heaven. And so the people in the kingdom of heaven, including God himself, are saying, those are the great ones. And they enter into the kingdom of heaven. The people who disregard the instructions of God, those are the least and they do not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is saying, 
Essentially, look, you don't, you don't have to follow the ceremonial law of the Israelites. We worship different. We have a risen God. We don't go to temple anymore. You don't have to follow the, the daily laws of being a Jewish citizen because, well, we live in America. But there are these moral laws and absolutes that are as natural as my right being my right and my left being my left. They're as natural as that for someone who truly knows God. And how do you truly know God? Because your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness, track with me here. The scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness was based on, am I murdering or not? Well, I'm not murdering, I must be righteous. Their righteousness was based on, can they obey the laws? Listen to me here. You and I, friends, we have a greater righteousness Because our righteousness, our right standing is in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It is on his righteousness alone that I stand. It is by his righteousness and the Holy Spirit that fills his believers that I can then live out the commands of God. It is not for the righteousness of God that I live out the commands. It is by the righteousness of God that I can live out the commands. So let me pause real quick. When I use words like saved and righteous, I listen, I go back and I like think about sermons and I think, I said saved like 10 times. The people know what I mean by saved or by righteous. So Paul says in Romans 7, 24, that he is being delivered from this body of death. Jesus saves us from this body of death we are in, where we try and try and try to do the right thing and we fail and fail and fail, and our, our righteousness compared to God's holiness is just pathetic. It's like filthy rags, and Jesus makes all things right. The wrath of God was poured out on him, and when I place my trust in him, I am then saved from this body of death. I'm saved from hell, I'm saved from myself, I'm saved from my sins, all because of Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what do I mean when I say that I am righteous? It means that God puts me in right standing with him. I was just talking with Ben Hurst, um, who Ben plays the keys. We were just talking um, back in the back a little while ago about a conversation he was having about when Jesus sees us, when the Father sees us, if we are Christians, he sees the blood of Christ that has washed us clean. He loves us just as we are, not as we should be, because of the imputed righteousness, right standing of Jesus upon us. And so, when a person follows him, there is a greater righteousness because of Jesus, and a demonstration that you are a part of his kingdom and his righteousness is that you are able to live out these commands that Jesus is teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've used words like flourish over the past few weeks. And Jesus is showing us that when our righteousness, our right standing with God, with him, is through him, listen to me, that our interpersonal relationships will begin to flourish. And so that's really what this next section is about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about our relationships with each other. You know the Ten Commandments, the first four are the vertical relationships, us and God. The next six are about us together, our horizontal relationships. 
Jesus is about to give six examples of these horizontal relationships and how in him, our lives should be different and flourishing. So here we go. Let's, let's take a look at Matthew 21 or Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so Jesus goes on here and he, he gives them like what to do if this is the case. But let's just start in verse 21. Jesus said, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to death. So two verses for you. Exodus chapter 20, that's when Moses gives the 10 commandments to the people. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. And then Numbers chapter 35, verse 30, if someone commits murder, they shall be put to death. So Jesus is quoting two very common Old Testament verses. If you, if you murder, you'll be put to death. And people are like, yeah. And then Jesus flips the whole thing on its head. And he does that every time he teaches. He flips the whole thing on his head. Look what he says. He says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Do you see that? You've heard it said, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Do you see? It's the same thing. Angry, murder, judgment, judgment. Jesus says something very fascinating here. He says, he says you've heard it said about murder. You'll be put to death. But I tell you, if you're angry with a brother or a sister, you'll be put to death. It's judgment. Now you can imagine the folks are like, what is he talking about? All they've ever heard was Exodus 20.13 and Numbers 35.30. That's all they've ever heard. And so they're like, what is he talking about? I, I want to I teach you a little expression. The expression is pekuach nefesh. Life is greatest value. You can't really read that, but that's okay. Um, it's on a slide. So, pakuap nefesh. <laughs> life life is, the, is the highest value or the greatest value. This is a very common Jewish phrase, pakuap nefesh. In fact, anyone here who speaks Hebrew will say, you said it wrong, and that's fine. I probably did. Um, it should be more guttural, but pakuap, pakuap nefesh. Uh, it's this very, very common Jewish line. And it totally revolves around murder. Because the Jews believe the greatest value God gave us in this life is life. And so you do whatever you can to protect life. You, you go to any length to protect life. That's why uh, in, in, in Nazi Germany, it was okay for a Jew to lie. That's one of the top 10. That's like a 10 commandment. It was okay to lie if it meant to save a life because pekuach nefesh, the value of life overrides everything else. That's also why in Nazi Germany, if a Jew was starving and someone fed them non-kosher food, it would be okay for them to break kosher dietary laws because preserve the life, pekuach nefesh. And so Jesus said, when you, peku, when you don't pekuach nefesh, when you murder someone, you've heard it said, when you murder someone, you will be put to death, eye for eye. 
And he said, but I tell you that when you're angry with someone, what he's saying is when you're angry with someone, you are not valuing their life. You are anti-pakuach nefesh. Now, this, is, this would have been like the people in the audience, they would have started talking to each other. They would have been like, you ever heard this? And then like the really good students would have been like, shh, we'll talk later. Um, like this would have been radical for someone to hear. Uh, I mean, this is all through the Bible. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10? There's a, a guy and he's beaten half to death, a Jewish man, and then a priest walks by him and the priest doesn't stop. And, uh, and then a, a, a Levite walks by him and the Levite doesn't stop. The Levite and the priest valued their lives more than the man's life. They disregarded Pekuah Nefesh. It was a big deal. However, a Samaritan who could get in big trouble for even touching a Jew is the one who picks him up and takes him into town. The Samaritan valued Pekuah Nefesh, the Jewish man's life, more than his own life. And that would have been a radical story for people in Jesus' day to have heard because they understood Pekuah Nefesh is in all of the things of God. And so look at verse 22. It says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister, subject to judgment, again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, So whoever is angry with his brother equals liable to judgment. Whoever calls his brother a moron, that's what the word raka means, moron. By the way, do you know what moron means? The Hebrew word for moron, because I think that's what Jesus was referencing. It, it means vacuum. Like, I don't mean like the machine. We're not talking Mr. Dyson. We're talking, um, we're talking like a vacuum like in space, like it's, it's nothingness. So when you say to your brother, you're literally worthless, You're liable to the Sanhedrin, to the court. And when you call someone a fool, and the word for fool here means that you are morally corrupt to the point you're irreparable. These are all forms of anger. And this isn't a list of like best bad to like worst bad. These are all judgment. This is all the same as murder. So let's just pause real quick. Let's just ask the elephant in the room. As we're talking about this, this this anger, which is akin to murder, is anybody coming to mind? Is anybody coming to mind? Anybody that if they walked in the room, you just wouldn't even be able to listen to another word I said because you'd be so mad they're here. Maybe they're here. Think about it. Um, I remember I, I was heard this story and a guy said, okay, we're going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord if anybody comes to mind. And I was like, that's great. And I was in this like conflict with my parents and I was like, I know that they're going to come to mind. They are not being good parents. Let's pray. And, uh, and as, as we prayed, it was like a bunch of high school kids and I was like a college leader. And as we prayed, it actually wasn't them that came to mind. It was the person who I thought was on my team that was trying to get me to go against my parents that came to mind. And I realized, I'm so mad at this person. 
They've caused so much strife in my life. And so it's surprising sometimes how this works. But we got to ask the question, why is it such a big deal to be angry with someone? I mean, why judgment in hell? I get it if you murder someone, if you truly take their, their life, if you truly disvalue their pukuaf nefesh, the value of life, and you just cut it off, and you're like, I'm done with you, and you kill them. I get that, like, that could be judgment in hell. I mean, that's what people say, right? Like, uh, do you think you'll go to heaven? They're like, well, I've never killed anybody. Like, okay, sounds good. Um, like, but if you were like, are you mad at anybody? They'd be like, yeah, a few people. You'd be like, ah, it's no big deal. But that's not what Jesus says. So let's think about let's think about our culture. I read an article this weekend in Rolling Stone on uh, on the country music warfare that's happening, and uh, it's not just like Jason Aldean's um, tried this in a small town. It's like it's they were talking about this festival. This um, there was this festival manager, and she was saying. Yeah, used to at country music festivals, all the artists would go backstage and they'd sit around with their guitars and they'd play songs and they'd laugh and they would talk. And they said, over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more dressing room doors shut. We've seen more and more people angry at each other. We've seen more and more people just want to talk about politics. And so, like, anger is almost celebrated. Like, you have to have a side and you have to not like the other side, um, I mean, you think about it, culture, our culture loves tribes, we love divides, we love canceling, uh, we love keyboard cowboys, like we just are like, oh, that guy got on his key, on, on his, on, he's like on the, the, what is it, Onyx? Yeah, he's like, he's out there like keyboard cowboy, I'm going to get him. And like, we just love that stuff. Some people stay up late at night watching videos to make themselves angry. Stop it. Go to sleep. Uh, read your Bible or something. Uh, Heather sent me this reel on, uh, on, on the old gram, and, uh, and I do love some reels. And so I was watching this reel, and it was this guy, and he had like a face tattoo, and, uh, and he had like a big neck tattoo. I mean, I'm not opposed to tattoos, but like, that's a lot of tattoos. And, uh, and he was driving down the road, and he was like, man, I used to be so punk rock. He said, when I was growing up, I was so punk rock. I had a, a mohawk that was like a foot tall. And he has this like deep, deep, strong New York accent. And so it was even more enjoyable to watch. And, uh, and he said, he goes on and he says, but you know what? I fight against the system. I fight against the machine. I'm anti-establishment. And now I realize that is mega-establishment. Everybody's anti-establishment. They're all mega-establishment. And he goes on and he's like, today, to be real punk rock, I guess you got to be a Christian. And then like, he says a few words that are not sermon appropriate. And, uh, and he's like, so here's to you, OG punk rock Christians, carry on. And you're like, that's what I'm talking about. So look, this, there's this idea that maybe you are the punk rockers. Maybe you are like the, the ultimate mega establishment when you say, you know what? Like maybe anger's not to be celebrated. But again, why is this such a big deal? Why is anger and hatred such a big deal? Remember, Jesus is bringing about, he's not doing away with murder, that's still really bad. But he's drilling down to the heart of what it means to be a murderer. And to be a murderer, you gotta start out being angry. And it's super easy to be angry. Anybody can be angry. What you're saying when you're angry with someone, listen to me here. What you're really saying is, my life is more valuable than yours. 
you have really annoyed me. And since you've encroached in my space and annoyed me, I deem you less important. That is the seeds of murder. Because ultimately, when a life dwindles down to way less important than yours, what's it matter if it's gone? So while you may not be guilty when you're angry of someone with actual murder, you are guilty with attempted murder. You have started down the road of killing that person. That's what this is. When I'm angry with my brother or sister, and note, this is first. Jesus is talking in, in, in modern day, this would be Christians with Christians. He's not even delving into the world of like the rest of the world. Pekuaf nefesh, life is the highest value. Do you remember the, the Genesis story, the creation account that's in the first two chapters of the Bible? Um, I think it's like nine times that the Lord says, the Lord says, uh, and, and the Lord said, and then it happened. And God spoke, and it happened. And God spoke, and it happened. And God spoke, and it happened. But in Genesis 2, 7, it says, then the Lord God, trans then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. I, look, I'm not given and you're not given the position of being able to determine the worth of a person by how much I do or don't like them. God determined their worth. Look, we're the only thing we're told in Genesis that he made with his hands and he breathed his breath into the Ruach of God into us. Everything else he spoke and it began to exist. But you and I, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we begin to see each other that way, it should melt the anger. In my anger, what I'm really hoping for is to take a little bit of the breath out of somebody else. And when you and I try to take a little bit of the breath out of somebody else, we are beginning to strangle them. And it's exhausting. Look, justice is actually, uh, uh, when justice actually becomes revenge, we have crossed into divine territory. Deuteronomy 35, 22, vengeance is mine, so saith the Lord, I will repay. So a flourishing life looks different. Look at verses 23 and 24 again in the text. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you or your sister has something against you. And by the way, you're at a church gathering. You are bringing, in a sense, a gift to the offering. And so Jesus is going to give a few simple steps here. He's going to say, there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift and settle matters quickly. So what does the flourishing life look like for Christians? 
Look, I just put five little bullets. One, Christians don't talk about, they talk to. One of the easiest ways to get rid of anger is to talk to, not about. Christians don't avoid conflict. We should be the best at hitting this head on, especially as brothers and sisters in Christ who will live together forever in eternity. Christians don't save face. Christians are peacemakers and Christians are reconcilers. I want to read you a few excerpts from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, which is a really beautiful discourse on how we are reconcilers. We have the ministry of reconciliation. God, the love of God in Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, listen to this, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Listen, if the Lord doesn't count our trespasses against us in Christ, what right do we have to have this anger where we hold each other's trespasses against each other? We should be the quickest to forgive. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Proverbs 19.11 says that it is the glory of a person to overlook an offense. Look, one of the giant distinguishers of Christians is that we don't save face. When it's time to make an apology, we just own what we did. My iPad is a silly example of that earlier. I, I cannot believe I blame my iPad when I'm the one who touched the image and like moved it around. Don't do what I did. Like, just own it. We all make plenty of mistakes. And when you own your sin and you have to ask someone forgiveness, it is amazing how honesty promotes honesty. And it is flourishing when that happens. You feel so free. Anyone you have tried, is there anyone that you have tried to take a little bit of their life from, by holding a grudge, by hoping they know how bad they were. Is there anybody like that? Jesus says it's more important for you and I to be right with each other than it is for us to continue to sit in a worship service. Look, you got to ask again, why? Why? In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, when we embrace the value of the life of others and we let go of our anger and let the Lord deal with whatever he needs to deal with in them, it is amazing how we can sit in the same room with somebody that we shouldn't be able to. It is amazing how we can wish others well who the rest of the world would curse. So here's my instructions, and we're about to actually do this. The first is this, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, number one, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Number two, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Number three, go and be reconciled. And then number four, come and offer your gift, come and worship. If tonight, as you sat here, by the way, this implies, this is not my job to induce like some weird church guilt on you that you're supposed to have somebody you're angry with. I hope you don't. This implies that the Holy Spirit doesn't work in this instance. A very clear, specific work. So don't like imagine that you're mad at somebody and then go make a weird apology. That'd just be awkward. Um, And don't apologize to someone for something they had no idea. Like, don't go and be like, you know, I've hated you for five years. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. Nope, stop it. I have had people apologize, things like that to me, and I was like, now it's just weird between us. Like, don't. I I didn't need to know. But if there's someone that there is strife and you know that that's going on and you've wronged them, they've got something against you, I would say that's the Lord that brought that person to mind. So if you remember, in just a second when we start to sing, I want you to leave your gift. I want you to deal with this. I want you to text them. I want you to call them. I want you to go and pray with somebody to figure out how to, you need to have that conversation. Pray with someone to prep that conversation. Pray that the Holy Spirit will prep their heart for that conversation. And then I want you to go and try to be reconciled to them because we're supposed to do this quickly. When the Lord brings this to mind, it's the right time to deal with it. And then, let's eat ice cream. It'll be beautiful. But it's a clear prescription, and it's good of the Lord if he has brought someone to mind. Because the world needs to see us and say, they love each other, and it's weird. They shouldn't. Hebrews 12, 13 through 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Do you see that? When we have anger, it's not just personal. It actually can defile many when it turns into bitterness. And and it's going to be a cancer for you, but it's going to be a cancer for others. So Jesus drills down. He says, yes, you know you shouldn't murder, but I want to tell you you shouldn't be angry because when you're angry, it's attempted murder. You're trying to take a little bit of the breath away from someone. 
And so go and make amends and be good brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll close with this word from Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, the root of anger is pride. And pride says, you're not acting how I think you should act. The anecdote for that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We certainly did not act how we ought to act. And yet, in humility, not pride, Jesus steps out of heaven and says, you aren't acting how you should act, so I'll act the right way for you. And that is the good news, the hope that we rest in. Pray with me. Father, as you move in our hearts tonight, Before we go and sing and then have ice cream together and hang out, Lord, I just ask that you would continue to do a work in us. Lord, that you would free us from anger, that we would trust you with that person, that we would have the humility to go and humble ourselves and ask their forgiveness without expecting them to do the same for us. Lord, help us to strive for peace with one another. Help us to value that person's life who is so hard for us to value because you valued their life and ours. Let us have the mind of Christ in this. Move in our hearts tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.